Hey, this is Tim Hunzey, partner of Parallel Music Publishing and board member of the Nashville Association of Independent Music Publishers. Thanks for listening to the Nashville Pubcast. This episode of Nashville Pubcast, we have Jesse Frazier of Rhythm House. We grind out his path from tape guy to producer, publisher, and hit songwriter. I think people are going to be really interested in hearing your story and how you see it as it progressed for yourself. Sure. From Detroit, and uh, kind of went to high school in Flint, and ended up going to Michigan State for um, the first couple years of college. I was one of the fortunate ones that kind of knew pretty early on you want to be in the music business. I was in a musical household. My dad played bass in, in the Detroit music scene. My uncle played drums for Trisha Yearwood a little bit at the time, and, and so he was kind of in between gigs and doing things, but we would always just take road trips down here. Worked at this little publishing company. They closed within six months of me being there. Tom Schuyler was running it and Cindy Foreman, and it just was a classic music industry story. So it was like, oh, this is how it goes. Quickly met a guy named Scott Sherrod, and he kind of brought me into the wings at uh, Major Bob Music, a uh, girl named Becca Calloway at the time. Becca Tishker yeah. now was there. And they were amazing. They, they kind of both took me under their wings and, and schooled me in independent music publishing. I started off in tape copy. We were still in dat tapes at the time. <laughs> I remember transferring all that <laughs> yeah. stuff, man. We even had reel to reel. I started transferring some of that. We had I it around. I, 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 fortunately, I was kind of past that a little bit, yeah. but it was there. So there was definitely some moments where I had to put reel to dat. You know? oh, wow. And I moved to town to be a songwriter, but I was pretty intimidated by it. I remember taking that Tom Shapiro class at Belmont and just going, man, these guys, uh, Neil Thrasher was at Major Bob, and I was just intimidated. It was just was like, I can't do it. This is not me. It wasn't that I didn't like it. I never really listened to country music at the time, but I really appreciated the craft of it. And I just fell in love with publishing and thought, this, I'm cool with not being a writer. I would just DJ and... Maybe I'll make some remixes on the side, but my career is going to be on the business side. Somewhere along the lines in that path, a couple different things happened. You mentioned Carol Ann Mobley. Right. She asked me to DJ a birthday party for her. I think it was in East Nashville. It was. And from that experience, she got a phone call from a friend asking for a local DJ. She recommended me. Well, it turns out it was the governor's daughter's engagement party and at that event there was a event planner there named Colin Cowie and I didn't know who he was at the time I came back and said I met this guy he said he loved my stuff and wanted me to do other parties this was his party he was planning for the governor and my wife goes I know him he does stuff for Oprah and like the Kardashians (laughs) so cut to the next few years of my life I'm flying all over the, the world doing weird events from Alyssa Milano's wedding to, you know, parties for Cash Money Records, Drake and Nikki and Little Wayne and uh, Kim Zosiak on Real Housewives of Atlanta's wedding and just random stuff. We'd be in Mexico for New Year's and Atlantis. I and- remember being in awe of you at this point in time thinking, man, how is he getting all these cool gigs? This is the coolest stuff ever. It was crazy. It was, I always just was like, why are you flying this white kid from Nashville? Hollywood <laughs> DJ Cash Money Records parties but I think like anything in life if we know something can go smooth in one aspect of it we're going to at least do that because everything else could be a variable right? right so if you know something works repeat that
tipping my hat to you as one of the early guys in that field of writer, producer, and business guy. You have kind of the whole triple threat there that not everybody has had. And uh, and it's and that's what I think is unique to a number of new executives coming up in the music business, that it's changing the game a lot. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because there was a little pushback. You, you start getting some cuts, and, and there was a lot of people in town that were sort of like, look, dude, you got to focus. You can't do one or the other. And my thing was, and I always had told the people that I worked for, is look, if it becomes an issue, I'm going to know it before you do. I know when writers start to feel like, wait, I'm not, am I competing with my VP? Or is this, is he after his own good? Or, you know, but I was showing them that, you know, I'm bringing Carrie out and, you know, our, his first number one was my first number one. And I'm doing demos for them. I was doing tracks for him. I was pulling him in op- opportunities. I think you have to be careful in anything in life. You know, anytime you split focus, you're splitting focus. I don't care what line of work you're in. But the way my brain works, I truly, I don't recommend every writer being a publisher. And I don't recommend every publisher being a writer. I think I truly enjoy, I get more fired up about my writers getting a cut than I getting a cut on that record. And if you can't say that, if you can't truly, and it's one thing to say it out loud, but if yeah. you can't truly be as content with that, then you probably shouldn't be a publisher. Okay, Rhythm House, man. Like, what brought that on? You were working at Major Bob, and you started getting your activity and getting some cuts and everything. So what instigated or what brought that on? Probably, I'm going to guess, there's some luck involved or something. Sure. <laughs> I mean, I'm the poster child of <laughs> to just do things your own way. Don't chase and don't conform too much. Don't be stubborn, you know. But after 15 years at Major Bob, my writing career was sort of blossoming and and good things were happening. My corporate career or my business side sort of had hit a ceiling. For about a year and a half that there was about, there was opportunities out there. I just was being super picky because when you grow up with so much freedom and the ability to jump genres at any moment and and not have to do expense reports or whatever else it is, you're just used to someone kind of trusting that you're out there hustling it for the betterment of the company. So I was really careful about jumping into a a corporate partnership or a corporate job or just any role that was going to be like, hey, we want you to produce X, Y, Z. And, you know, but at the same time, there was guys like Scott Borchetta was kind of coming after me for different positions and ideas. And I had a ton of respect for him and still do. And so that kind of built confidence in me just going, man, that, you know, he was persistent in calling and going, we could figure things out and do whatever you want to do. And nothing had just sort of, I knew there was going to be that moment. I never wanted to stay someplace out of fear, but I just knew that eventually it had to be the right fit. Well, Ben Vaughn had tried to kind of bring me over to chapel and knew my kind of stance on, no, I'm not interested in doing that. But then he called again and said, Hey, I have been talking to rock nation and they kind of want to open a flag here. And I said, you have to meet Jesse. So I was in LA for the Grammys and Tamara, um, who runs the publishing company in LA, invited me to a writer retreat they were having. So we went to this mansion in the hills (laughs) thing and sat down with them. And that went really good. I liked her. As I was leaving, my phone rang and it was Jay Brown saying, (laughs) come to my office right now. Basically, it was sort of like tomorrow. See if this kid's yeah. worth the shit. A little then, bit of a yeah, setup, right. <laughs> so I went right to his office, and I, you know, 
I hadn't experienced too much stuff in the you know the urban side of the industry other than the cash money Damn. parties that, which were always crazy. <laughs> so I didn't know what to expect. And you know I was a little naive to the 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 full stretch of Rock Nation. You know now I know it's like sports agency and you know all genres and Latin music and they have Nigerian music and all kinds yeah. of stuff going on and artist management. But just sitting there, it was amazing. Jay just said, "Look, you know, you don't need us. We could really use you, though." And nice opening line. Yeah, by the way. <laughs> Dude, awesome. you were in right there. Yeah. He was good. also. He just looked at me in the you know in the eye the whole time. No cell phone. You know, for an hour and a half, we sat in his office, and there's a guy who's managing Rihanna, and she's about to drop a record at the time, and you know, so he just sort of gave me undivided attention. I loved his philosophy. He was just like, look, we're not going to be shoving music down your throat. We're not going to say, hey, this is country. Sign this. We just want to have a, a, you know, a brand ambassador and a, and a partner. So I signed with Rock Nation and Warner Chapel. And then Rhythm House was a partnership between myself and Rock Nation that we opened up uh, about a year and a half ago. Um, BJ Hill uh, splits time between us and Warner Chapel. So he comes, he came on board on the creative team. My wife was grew up in publishing stevie and uh she joined our team and then i ended up signing carrie barlow and we just signed Stephen lee olson and a young amazing writer producer named brandon day and it's great all great yeah, yeah. Nice, so we, nice staff we got writers already yeah so it's, it's been fun man we i'm very slow to sign writers i, I feel like you i was know, gonna ask the philosophy that was gonna be one of my questions like what how do you how do you what's your process in that? I'm a dater, that's the word I use. I'm yeah, very much absolutely, a dater. Absolutely, dude. It's personality, personality, personality. I will pass on a prolific writer if I can't hang with them. You know, we we've all we've been doing this long enough to to know there's those ones that roll into the parking lot and you're like, Oh man, my next two hours are shot or yeah. you know, I want everyone that comes into that building. My family's there, man. This is my dream scenario. I've got, you know, 80s arcades in the front, yeah. My studio in the back. Possibly the coolest uh, <laughs> office in town. Again, something to be envious of and uh, or jealous. I think jealous is the right word. Envious is bad. But, uh, it, it's a, yeah. It's so uh, the last thing you want to do is get into a. You know, these are not employees. These are partners, right? I don't care what their co-pub scenario is. These are partnerships. Absolutely. And the ones that understand that and understand that, look, you know, I'm going to partner with you. This is a team. I'm going to listen to you. Even though I'm not their boss, mm. they're signing on to be a partner and help us guide their brand, right? And you can tell pretty quickly, man, if you, you start, like you said, dating is a great term for it. You start bringing someone into some situations, you give them a couple tasks, maybe you give them a remix, or you, if it's a producer, maybe, you know, I, Brandon's cutting his teeth, I, um, I gave him a Marry Me remix to, to see what he would do with it, you know, or... Um, Put them into a couple situations. Ask the writers how they handle themselves. What do they bring to the room? Um, go have dinner with them. What do, how do they treat their wife, their girlfriend, whatever? That's the kind of stuff, man. It's like those things will rear their head pretty quickly within a couple months, yeah. you know. And I've just never been the guy that, that goes, oh, well, I've got another offer from so-and-so. And I said, man, if that's where your heart's leading, you got to go do that. I'm not going to do something quicker and get off of our pace of exploring this relationship just because someone else wants you. Do you see 
any changes on um, the A&R and, and record label side. I, I'm kind of envisioning, to, I see us as publishers specifically, and I know you guys on what you do because you're hiring a lot of and, and have in-house the producer angle. And we know that we're doing a lot more artist development. Do you see any changes that you might see where there will be more and more co-ventures, maybe some partnering up with labels on production sides and, and creating more joint venture companies coming in the future? This is something I'm kind of feeling I see happening because they just don't have the time and the resources to do it anymore. Sure. Not to mention the, the revenue stream of Spotify and the master ownership is is, <laughs> um, is a fancy new word, master ownership. Buddy. It's strikingly wow. different, you know, and, it, and it's there's a lot of money happening in that field. So the the bottom line is I do think we have been in an A&R facility. There's some amazing A&R people in this town still to this oh, day. Yeah. But, you know, the, the publishing ranks are taking chances on developing a lot of times funds. You know, I can't tell how many times have you invested in artists to go cut some sides with somebody or this idea or even if it's a in-house produced thing you send it to go get mixed so or you I, give your time to write with them there's absolutely. a lot I, we do a lot absolutely. of artist development is when one of my friends sends me an artist we're helping that artist as well it's just the, the, yep. yeah, the time and money one thing that nashville runs into and it i definitely saw this first when you know i remember explaining to an attorney yeah i'm a i'm a writer producer but we're writers on the song too and they'd be like well why how come, you know, Paul Worley wasn't a co-writer on this stuff with the Dixie Chicks? And I'm like, well, it's different. We're like, <laughs> yeah. it's just, it's a different situation. It wasn't situation. in the room actually writing yeah. the song. So, you know, but I see it in our contracts sometimes. We're very, you know, slow to change things. And, you know, some like just for instance, one topic that I, I talk with young producers on is um, your typical Nashville publishing deal, sh you know, has the publishing company owning 100% of this demo whatever you want to call this thing right this demo master term only exists in i had an town. episode addressing this issue actually because sure. it's getting more complicated yeah. it is getting complicated because it it came from the cost of going into a studio and the publishers you know putting this money on the table for you to go make this demonstration recording and come back and you know on the cheap side we'd go to the ruckus room and, and spend what 2500 three grand for five sides or something uh -huh. like that right and split it out but at the end of the year, you were lucky if all of your co-writers paid you what they owed you. They might even be signed, but we would carry like $50,000 oh, to $70,000 debts yeah. into the next year of demo recordings. So it's interesting that some of these writers are using rigs in, in, in studios that their publishers provided. Some of them are not. Some of them are just bringing their own thing to the situation. And, you know... If you were to add up the cost savings that have happened in the last five to seven years of producer writers helping out on demos compared to, I mean, I just know personally we used to budget $10,000 per writer per year. Still. You know, and you're still there. But imagine what it was then compared to now. Most of your writers probably, you know, it, at least 50% of their calendars probably with a writer producer at some oh, yeah. stage in their career, right? Probably more. I know. We're creeping towards six-figure savings at this point. Yeah. I can say as my company and what my bottom line looks like, it's a dra and, and just in seven years, right. drastically different now right. on what my debt is on just demos. So we need to restructure our publishing deals in certain ways. I do think the publisher, even if they're not paying for the studio or the cost of this demo, they're adding value to this quote-unquote demo or master. There should be some ownership there. There should be some ownership with the, these writers if they don't have any costs coming from the, the publisher. We should be looking at, if we're developing talent, maybe there are some JVs we do with Spotify ownership. 
we should look at production money in this town like production <laughs> advances i can go produce a baby side and pop music and see 15 to 20 k aside whereas in town the top ends are four or five k yeah. aside now the cost that there doesn't mean that the label's not spending a lot of money it's just going into different spots mm. but we need to look at points differently the, we're basically looking at the same points we have for the last five to seven years for production um so all these things we just need to stop stop well this is the way it's done well it needs to stop yeah. because the time is different i hate the phrase we've never done it this way before well great let's let's Perfect. not right that's now that, that's not currently working so yeah. let's try a different yeah. angle and i think it's a little bit i i think that the labels are getting more open-minded you see managers getting more open-minded i was approached last year about working with the young development guy and and it was not just a production agreement it was a production agreement that included a piece of career you know uh -huh. and it was this is you're invested in developing this so i think everyone's got to start looking at everything different and every time you do a deal you know assuming you don't sign a writer every six months maybe you do but every six months maybe you need to brush that up and go man this this deal is a little archaic in the way we're doing the min max for instance right. that's a great example of not to get too technical, but right. there's all kinds of aspects of our deals that it gets hard moving the attorneys quicker than I think we on the creative, not beating them up, but that's just they're so systematic in their processes. I had this conversation with a, a, a an attorney about just independent producer deals because you know as you, I have artists, I develop artists, and then I, I got to get the track. Sure. So then there's begets a conversation with the writer producer. Uh, whether it say be you, and then uh, you're at a different level, but a new guy, and you're like, okay, what do you, what's it going to cost? And then there might be a player on it, and then, then you might have to gauge attorneys. And even if that rider, let's say, we'll just keep this on a on a uh, hypothetical number. Say the guy's like, I'll give you the track for fifteen hundred dollars, and I'm like, all right, I'll buy that. But then I got to do a producer agreement, which is fair, I'm, I'm down with. Sure. But then that means we're engaging attorneys, Two each of us, yeah. and all of a sudden he might even see maybe. 500 or half of that money in his pocket and i'm out producer fees or attorney's fees and there's gotta we gotta simplify some sure. of this stuff on the front end on the on the indie level up to the master level but yeah I, I agree it's it's we're right there though i feel the changes coming it's just people don't know what to do yet but the conversations are sure. starting it feels like you see the artists getting frustrated too like i think they all want to operate like drake does in other words we go we wrote this today and tonight it's on spotify yeah we're all afraid of screwing up the the album cycle or screwing yeah. up a single's life and, and that has to do a little bit with the way our genre consumes music terrestrial radio is still king spotify in country is one of the smallest genres of, of spotify it's growing and we're seeing artists get attention from that but i do think that that would be a dream of artists to, to basically put out as you create put an album out at the end of the year or whatever you want it but maybe the deals are structured different you know yeah. maybe it's not i'm delivering an album every whatever it's i'm delivering a song and each song equals an album you know thanks for listening to the nashville aimp pubcast for more information, check out AIMP.org or follow us at Nashville AIMP on Instagram. The Nashville AIMP would like to give a shout out to our sponsors, Jamber and SoundExchange. Jamber wants to know if you're looking for an easier way to capture song splits at the point of creation and organizing your catalog. Jamber is our podcast sponsor and they are offering listeners a first look at their songwriter and publisher apps that allow songwriters to collaborate when inspiration strikes. Go to jamber.com forward slash AIMP to sign up today. 
Sound Exchange develops business solutions for the entire music industry. They collect and distribute royalties on behalf of more than 155,000 recording artists, master right owners, and music publishers. Sound Exchange have paid out more than $5 billion in royalties. SXWorks serves the licensing administration needs of music publishers around the world and operates CMRRA, which represents music publishers and administers mechanical rights for the majority of songs recorded, sold, and broadcast in Canada. We appreciate you listening to the Nashville Pubcast. Stay tuned for an all-new episode next week.